Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to be with you this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Evan. Uh, I have the amazing privilege and the blessing to be on staff here at the church. Uh, and they allow me to come up every now and then and, and bring forth God's word. So it is a blessing to be here with you and, and to continue our series uh, through Genuine Church. Uh, so far in this series, we've talked about the importance of God's word. We've talked about why the church should uh, take a focus in preaching and teaching, in holiness, in generosity, prayer, worship. Uh, we've talked about why these things are so important for our church, for a genuine church of God. And today we're going to continue this by looking at why a genuine church must place an importance and a devotion in practicing the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The word ordinance, it literally means an authoritative command. And when we look at baptism and we look at the Lord's Supper, these, these two acts of worship have been given by God for the church to practice. And we will see today why the genuine church should be devoted to upholding both of these ordinances as well as the significance that they have both for the Christian and for the church itself. But before, so, let's go to the, before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we just come before you this morning and we just thank you for uh, the amazing day that we have to worship you. Whether it's cloudy, whether it's sunny, whether it's rainy or snowy, it's an amazing day to worship your name. And Father, I just ask that you're with each of us this morning as we make the, the trek through your word, discovering the truths about uh, what you desire your church to look like. And Father, we say your church. It is not our church. It is not about us. It's not about what we want, our desires, Lord. It is your church. And I pray that you will continue to build each one of us up who make the church, not this building, each one of us. And so be with us now, Lord. Let these words that are spoken here today be yours, not my own. And Father, just speak to our hearts and allow us to grow today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I know here at Living Water, uh, this is a very diverse church filled with many people from many different faith backgrounds, a number of different uh, denominations maybe, all coming together and uh, worshiping together in this space here at Living Water. And, um, you know, there are sometimes when we look at the Lord's Supper, when we look at baptism, there is disagreements uh, one of which might come up with, you know, me saying, I, I, we're, we're talking about the ordinances today. Some people might say, oh, no, those are sacraments. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole discussion of the ordinances versus sacraments. Uh, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but what I will be addressing here this morning is that the Lord's Supper and the baptism, they're, they're ordinances as we believe that these are commands given by God uh, to do in the church. That word sacrament, it, it kind of conveys that idea that grace is uh, implied in these acts uh, that ultimately leads to salvation. And uh, that's not something that we believe. Neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper are a means to salvation. Uh, we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And both baptism and Lord's Supper, they're to be ordinances given by God to reflect on that truth, uh, on the, the grace that is given by that faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so and that's what we're going to focus on here today and what it looks like for the believer and what it looks like for the church. 
Uh, so let's dive into everything. Uh, we're going to dive in first to, the, the, to baptism. Uh, so if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. We're just going to have a short passage this morning. And once you get there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. So like I said, right now we're going to talk about this first ordinance of baptism, and we know by hearing passages like Ephesians 4 that, that baptism is extremely important in the life of the church. Thanks to that passage, as well as numerous other biblical supports, the ordinance of baptism, it plays a central role in the church throughout its history, and it's an important aspect for our Christian worship. However, we, we tend to find a great deal of controversy that surrounds the subject of baptism. There, there are questions about whether or what the origin or the institution of baptism is, the meaning of baptism, who is permitted to baptize or not, uh, who, if baptism is only to be done in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is baptism restricted to adults who have made professions of faith or could infants be baptized as well? Does baptism actually, what does, what does it accomplish in people's lives? And is baptism by sprinkling, dunking, dipping, immersion, whatever you want to say, whatever it involves water, what is it? There's lots of controversy and questions that surround this ordinance of baptism. It's a highly debated topic. And th this topic, it has split churches, it has split denominations. So given the fact that we have one Lord one faith and one baptism, we might think that this conversation of baptism might have fewer questions surrounding it. And I find it tragic that so often churches and believers are so sharply divided about these issues that they won't even talk to each other anymore. Now, these divisions and these controversies, they are a picture that show that, that believers do recognize that baptism is important. We should recognize that. It's a serious matter, and no one can read the New Testament without clearly seeing that, that, that baptism, it's an important element within the Christian faith. It should be considered as an important issue, as it was an ordinance given by God to uphold. But these questions that surround baptism, the, the differences in opinion, those should not divide Christians. They should not divide the church. This issue, it's been examined and it's been debated for over 2,000 years and there is no full agreement and we're no closer to getting there. It's an area of church practice in which we are to come alongside our, our brothers and sisters and we're, 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 we're to, it doesn't matter what we practice or what we prefer. It's that we do baptism, that we do this in the church. The bottom line, it's, it's not the mode of baptism that we, that we use. It's, it's that we do it, that we actually perform baptism. And I've spent the last few days reading countless scholars on these issues. Um, a lot of these people don't agree on how we are to do, to, to do baptism, whether you uh, just do the little sprinkling, whether you fully immerse somebody, 
these scholars, they're all divided, but the one thing that they all agree on is that it's important for the church and we should do it regardless of the method in which we use. Baptism is important. We should the next few minutes discussing why baptism is necessary for the church. And if you want some more information on those other questions, come talk to me after the service, schedule a meeting. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about that. But let's dive into what baptism is. And to sum it up, the ordinance of baptism, it's the outward expression of inward realities. What are these inward realities? Well, when we look to the inward realities of baptism, the first of three that I'm going to bring up is that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the first inward reality. Believers in Christ who recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is Messiah, he is judge. When we recognize that, that, that Jesus is Lord who deserves all of our obedience, our praise, and our worship, that he is the Messiah who is the rightful king over all, meaning the earth, meaning our lives. He's the king of our lives. And that Jesus, he's the judge who is the definer of righteousness and the sustainer of all truth, upholding the justice and the righteousness of the Father. When we place our faith in Jesus and we, we declare that we truly believe those things about who he is and what he has done for us, and we continue to build our lives on them, that's that first inward reality. The second is very, very similar, um, but it's that I have repented of my sins in the book of Acts, Peter gives a sermon on Pentecost, and he preaches the gospel to a large number of people. He, 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 says, he says all of the things that are true about God, but listen to the response of the people to this sermon. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to them, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That word repent here, it literally means to turn away from, the physical act of turning away from something. And so what Peter is telling these individuals is when, with the sins in their lives, they must turn away from it. They must get away from it in order to follow after Jesus. If those truths that you believe about Jesus are in your heart, you should be wanting to turn away from them. And ultimately, these people, they repented and they trusted in Christ and they were baptized. In the same way, we are all sinful believers. We're walking on a path towards our destruction in life. We might not even realize, realize it at times, but when we allow our sins and our passions and our desires to guide our lives, we are walking further and further away from God in every moment. But then we see something that catches our eye. There's this guy walking towards us, and when we recognize After Jesus in all things. It doesn't mean, though, that sin, it just goes away. It will follow us. It will beg us to come back. It says, hey, look at me. I'm, tempta I, I'm temptation. I'm what you desire. But when we repent of our sins and we have that truly repentant heart, we turn away physically and we leave that behind and we follow Jesus. That's what it means to repent of our sin. We completely surrender our lives to Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Now, that, 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 like I said, that doesn't mean that we're free from temptations. But in those moments where 
where sin is knocking at the door, begging us to give our attention to it. In those moments, we move towards Jesus, we, we grasp onto the truth of the word, and we keep our eyes fixed on him in all of the circumstances. Sin and temptation, it's present in this sinful world. It's always going to be there, but when we repent and we declare that Jesus is the new leader, the, the new Lord of our lives, we have a new direction. That's the inward reality of believers. The second one, to repent of our sins. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about his death and resurrection, he spoke to the crowd of people following him and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As believers, we are to deny ourselves. We're to take up that cross and follow him daily. Denying ourselves, it does not mean merely just tweaking our behavior here and there. It's saying no to the deepest sense of who we are as a sinful being, all for the sake of Christ. Jesus requires everything of everyone. And when we surrender everything to him, that inward reality of repentance, it's seen in our lives. The third inward reality is that I've received the Holy Spirit who is changing me. Jesus said this when speaking to the disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and be, bring, remembrance, bring your remembrance to all that I have said. After placing our faith in Christ and repenting of our sin, the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells the believer. Paul writes, there is, there, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit is life. It has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Spirit strengthens us and changes us and convicts us all for the purpose of developing a Christ-likeness in all of us. And when we are changed and we are transformed, and we no longer identify with the world, we, we have what the Spirit develops in us, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul writes that all of these things, that's what makes up Christ's likeness. As we abide in Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to change us, these fruits of the Spirit, they get produced in our lives. And that's not to say that each one of us is is strong in every single one of these. I, I struggle with patience at times, but, but the Holy Spirit is still changing me, helping me to grow in that. And there is the same for you. The Holy Spirit, he is conforming us to the image of Jesus in all things, the one who perfectly embodies the, the love and every other virtue that is mentioned on this list. And that's what it means when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells us, changes us to look like Christ. That's what that looks like. These three inward realities of the believer, the placing faith in Jesus, repenting of our sins, and believing uh, that, 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 the, that the Holy Spirit is changing us and renewing us and transforming us, that's the heart of why baptism is so important. And so these inward realities of the believer are, are now, now seen. That's what, we, that's what we look for in our lives. But now we've got to outwardly express those things, the, the outward expressions of those truths. And the first of these outward expressions is that baptism, it represents Jesus' own death and resurrection. 
Paul writes, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Jesus' death and his resurrection, it's the picture of what baptism re represents. He died for the world, but he didn't stay that way. On the third day, he rose again, conquering sin, conquering death. And that's, why, that's what baptism represents. That's what that act is. And that leads us into the second part of the outward expressions, which is that baptism, it resembles our, our death to sin and our life in Jesus. Romans 6.4, it says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul here, he's continuing this argument that he had talked about in Galatians chapter 2 where he described the Christian life. He says, For the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live is, the is in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In these verses of Galatians, Paul here, he's articulating this principle of, of an integrated Christian life. He's, he's basically saying, I am in Christ, so I live in Christ. And he's telling the believer, you are a Christian, you are a believer, so become the Christian that God has enabled you to become. Paul is saying that we are to die to sin, to, to put to death the old self, because having been raised with Christ, live with him in new life. So when we outwardly express the, the inward realities of our heart, when we change and we are transformed by our faith, that is what it looks like through baptism to identify with Christ in all areas of our life. So what's the significance? Well, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we find this climactic communication between Jesus and his disciples. Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, it came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's significant here that Jesus begins this mandate by telling his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In all of his teaching up until his crucifixion, Jesus never commanded baptism. And all, all of this, but he, he did so in this moment. He commanded that it would take place. Having risen from the dead, conquering sin and death, he had this authority as the risen, uh, risen God taking back that. And because of this finished work, he creates this new sign for a new covenant in him. And he did that just by, com uh, by, by commanding baptism. And now, as we mentioned earlier, baptism, it's not this means to salvation. It's an ordinance given by Christ for the church and the only way, like we said, to experience salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so if you ask me, is baptism necessary for salvation? The answer is no. But if you were to ask me, is baptism necessary for the Christian? The answer is a resounding yes. Baptism is necessary for obedience because Christ, with no ambiguity, commanded that all those who belong to him, who are part of the new covenant family and who receive the benefits of his salvation, they are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, identifying with Jesus, identifying with Christ and what he did for us, that public uh, pronouncement of who we are in Christ. And so that means the genuine church, it's one who baptizes believers. Here at Living Water, our desire is to baptize. We want to baptize. And this happens, the way that happens here at Living Water is that we have a baptism class where um, we, we, we go a couple weeks before baptism. We just had one. Um, you meet with one of the pastors or one of the elders, and we walk through these inward realities of our heart so that we're prepared to make that outward expression. And a few weeks later, uh, and coming up here in December, I think, Pastor Ben, I, I might be wrong on that, we're, we're going to have baptism, and we're going to do that. And, and you might ask, well, why don't we just set up a baptismal over here each week so that we can just start dunking people? We can just, we can just do that. Why, you know, why, that would be easier, wouldn't it? Well, the reason that we, we don't do that, the reason why we have a baptism class is because it, it's rooted in this command that Jesus gives. We are to make disciples as a genuine church of all nations. And once that happens, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, a genuine church, it's not just one that sets up a pool and just tells people to jump in. That's not a genuine church. A genuine church is one that cares enough to walk alongside the believer, make sure that those inward realities are truly growing so that we can baptize them into the faith, knowing that, hey, this person is saved, he is a child of God, and let's celebrate by baptizing. That is what a genuine church should be all about, and we can celebrate that outward expression of faith and repentance through baptism. That's why it's so important for the genuine church it's, it's not only one who just baptizes anyone, but helps them to outwardly express the inward realities of a changed life through the gospel. That's baptism. Now, what about the Lord's Supper? They gave me two things. I, ha I have to fit two things in a sermon here, so we're going to do it. The Lord's Supper, I'm sure you all know we, we're doing Lord's Supper here today. We're going to participate in communion here in just a few moments together. But let's talk about what the, the Lord's Supper is actually all about. You know, so often we can easily just come here and we can say, oh yeah, I'm going to go get a cup of little stale bread and get some grape juice and that's what we're going to do. But what does it actually mean? Why is it important for the church? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 14, uh, 22 through 25. And in this passage, this is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper um, from Mark's gospel. And the Lord's Supper, it's one of the most important moments in all of Christian worship and the church when it gets established here. Listen to the words here in Mark. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to them. And Jesus said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When we look at this passage, we see that that Jesus' death is now imminent. It's coming to pass just as Jesus had predicted time and time again before his arrest, before his betrayal, before his crucifixion. Jesus desires to share a meal with his disciples. And I say this meal because it's not just any meal. It's the Passover meal. It's the Passover festival. And Luke, Luke tells us of this desire explicitly. Jesus says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat of this Passover with you before I suffer. Passover, that's the meal in which Jesus desired to eat with his disciples. And it's no accident that this meal is the Passover because we can't understand the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper without first understanding its connection to the the Supper of Passover. Passover, it's integral to what it meant to be a Jew at the time. It was an annual reminder of God's greatest act of salvation in the history of the world up until that point, in that feast, it was, designed, it was designed to remind the people of, of God of the day that God's wrath, it had passed over them in Egypt. If you're unfamiliar of the story, I'll try to give you a Cliff Notes version. But the book of Exodus, it begins with this dismal portrayal of the people of God. They are imprisoned. They are forced into difficult labor. Their children are being thrown into the Nile River by an evil Egyptian empire. They are portrayed as helpless and hopeless and without, uh, without anything of their own, and they're crying out to God to deliver them. And in Exodus 6, he answers. God calls Moses, and he sends Moses on a mission to confront the evil empire of Egypt. God sends these supernatural plagues from heaven to, 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 to re- get the Egyptians to uh, release the Jews, but Pharaoh, he would not release them. And after these nine truly awful plagues, God, he, he warns of this tenth and this final plague that he will unleash his wrath upon every single household in Egypt so that the firstborn son of every household would die. The only way to escape from this would be to follow God's instructions very carefully. Kill a spotless lamb spread its blood on the doorsteps of the house, eat the lamb together and prepare to leave the house, or prepare to leave because you are leaving Egypt the next day. And all those who ignored God and did not hide beneath the blood of the lamb experienced the wrath of God. But all those who trusted and followed the commandments and and did all that God said, they did not experience the wrath. They, they were passed over that night. The lamb's blood, it atoned for, it covered the house so that no one in the house had to die. And the next day, they were free to get up and leave Egypt and follow the Lord to the promised land. They would walk out through the Red Sea on dry ground only to turn around and watch the most powerful army in the world be crushed by the weight of the Red Sea collapsing over top of them. And they would continue to follow God who was manifested in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they would eat this miracle bread from heaven and drink water.
in its totality. It's, it's the display of God's power, God's wrath, God's grace, his mercy, and his faithfulness to fulfill promises that he made to his people. Such a salvation, it deserves to be remembered. God said that this would be an event that they would have to actively and intentionally remember. In Exodus, God says, this shall, be a memorial day, this, for, this shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This was to be remembered. And in order to help Israel remember this mighty salvation, God, he, he developed this Passover feast so that every year Israelites would gather together to retell the story and to feast just as they had feasted the night before their great salvation. The Passover meal, it's, it's God's design not only for the individuals who experienced it to remember, but it was God's design for instructing and sustaining faith from the, to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. When God ordained this the, the sacrifice of the spotless lamb in Exodus 12, 5. God ordained the death of that lamb so that it would point forward to the accomplishment of another spotless lamb who was to come. And here, fast forward a couple thousand years, on the night before Jesus' blood would be splattered on not the wooden doorposts, but the wooden cross, Jesus takes the elements of the Passover feast and he, he says these things, the cup and the bread, they are about me, the spotless lamb of God. All four gospel writers, they highlight the importance of this moment. And we have a window into first century churches observing this supper through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He says this, for I have received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians, it was written to a church over two decades after the Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples. And Paul says, I have received from the Lord what I also, what I also deliver to you. And in other words, this practice of observing this meal in remembrance of God's great salvation through Jesus. It was passed down from one Christian generation to the next Christian generation in obedience to Jesus' command on the night before he would die. And so as a genuine church, we, we practice the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to first remember the past, what has been done, to live in the present as a body of believers, and to look to the future. to what Jesus did on the cross. Or put another way, the Lord's Supper, it keeps the atonement central to our everyday faith. This is the essence of the, the good news of Christianity that we must remind ourselves of, that Jesus' blood was poured out for you. Look back at Mark at a meal where they were remembering the slaughter of a spotless lamb whose blood would cover them and protect them from the wrath of God. And Jesus, he takes this bread 
He breaks it, says, this is my body. He takes the cup, pours it out, and says, this is the blood of my covenant, which I pour out for many. Jesus wants them to remember that he was going to the cross for them. That word for is important. He's going to the cross on their behalf, where they were supposed to go, where we are supposed to go. He takes our place. He is taking upon himself where we deserve, what we should take, but he takes it for us. Jesus has taught us that for even the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the essence of Christianity, that we are sinners, that we deserve the fullness of the wrath of God. But God loves us, and he thus he made a way in which the judgment would pass over each of us. He made a way of forgiveness by pouring out this judgment on a spotless, sinless, nameless, uh, spotless, sinless sacrifice, namely Jesus, the, the eternal son of God who was born into this world and would ultimately die for the world. Paul writes, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely, scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, uh, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We need this reminder this this central message of Christianity, the implications there that Jesus died for you, he died for me, and Jesus believed that we would need to rehearse this reality as as, as we are broken, beaten, and and we are are, are so sinful. We are such sinful people, and we need this reminder that when we are broken, when we have sinned, we can come to a God who says, I love you enough to die for you. When we feel the bread in our hands, we consider the fact that this was Jesus' beaten body, broken for us. When we see the, the dark crimson color of, of wine, or in our case, grape juice, when we see that in the cup, we remember that his blood was willingly poured out for a sacrifice to our sins. And when we eat and when we drink, we realize afresh that we are the benefactors of this sacrifice. Listen to this excerpt from a book called A Gospel Primer for Christians. The author writes, The deeper I go into the gospel, the more I comprehend and confess aloud the depths of my sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and the selflessness behind it, I am laid utterly bare and exposed for the sinner that I am. Such an awareness of my sinfulness does not drag me down, but actually serves to lift me up by magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. And the more I appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness of my sins, the more I love him, and the more I delight to show him love through heartfelt expressions of worship. If you're here this morning, 
and you're suffocating under the weight of mistakes and failures. Jesus intended that through the Lord's Supper, we might turn our eyes to the cross, that we can look to the cross to be comforted, that we can look to the cross and be thankful, that we can look to the cross and see God's love. If you're here this morning and maybe you have drifted into arrogance and self, selfishness and worldliness, if your logic is more of the world and you sound a lot like your non-Christian friends, and when you talk about the plans for your life, look to the cross. Look to the cross to be humbled. Look to the cross for what really matters. Look to the cross for the clearest example of love, of godliness, of glory. Look to the cross and see your arrogance and your idolatry for what it is and what it deserves. If you're here this morning and maybe you've forgotten why you want to live the Christian life or maybe you've forgotten why you're making such sacrifices in the name of making disciples or caring for the hurting or sharing the gospel, look to the cross. Look to the cross to be reminded, to see that the love that is offered to sinners when they turn to Christ, look to the cross to consider that your sacrifices in comparison to the one who made the ultimate sacrifices are relatively small. We desperately need to rehearse the good news of the gospel message all the time, every day, without ceasing. We are a forgetful people who are in need, who are in need of remembrance. And God is so gracious that he has provided ways to turn our eyes again and again to the main thing. And that's why through the Lord's Supper, God turns our eyes to what Jesus did on the cross. But that's not all. Through the Lord's Supper, God is also turning our eyes to what Jesus is doing in his church. God shows us to remember his great salvation around a meal table for a reason. Remember Jesus' words as he takes this cup. He, he says that this is poured out in the new covenant in my blood. And that word covenant, it carries with it this meaning of relational commitment or relational uh, agreement. It's this cup of new relationship. It's a new relationship that God, with God that is living and it's active in the lives of believers. And when we partake in the Lord's Supper, it's as if we have accepted this invitation to this table of fellowship with Christ Jesus and with one another. Paul's words when he speaks about the Lord's Supper to the church, of Corinth, or the, the church in Corinth, he says this, the cup, of blessing that we the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation, is it not in a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one bread. And that word participation, it can sometimes be translated as fellowship. And in fact, when Luke is describing the very first church in Acts, he uses that word fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And there's this sense that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we all sit around with Jesus as if Jesus is with us reclined at the table. That's what the picture we are meant to draw. There's this relational union between us in Christ. It's real and it's present in this moment of worship. When we draw near to Jesus, at the same time we are also drawing near to those who are around the table with us, one another, the church. Jesus is creating not just 
a new person that's sitting in your seat. He's creating a new people of his covenant who are found to worship and reflect in the Lord's Supper. We are, we are people who find the, the sweetest companionship and fellowship in our common faith of Jesus. And can I just make a more controversial statement for a moment? If we don't join ourselves to a church who is actively participating and celebrating the Lord's Supper, we completely miss the point. We completely miss the point. If we, a genuine church, it's one who gathers together to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, reflecting on all of the truths, the fact that Jesus died for us, how that changes everything about who we are. It helps to grow us with our fellow believers. That's the church that God is building for himself. Listen again to another excerpt from the book, A Gospel Primer for Christians. Um, it says, the cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depths of my depravity. If I wanted people to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and I'm seen by others under the light of the cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gospel the gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill, and my self-righteousness reputation is left in ruin in wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, I find, my, I find myself feeling that I truly have nothing, nothing left to hide. And thankfully, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more that I find myself opened up to others about ongoing issues, about the sin in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear about my struggles with the past and present sins when the cross has already told them that I am a desperately sinful person? Am I, and the more I am confessing my sins to fellow Christians, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to their grace-filled counsel and prayers, experiencing richer levels of Christ's love and companionship with the saints. I give thanks for the gospel's role in forcing my hand towards self-disclosure and the freedom that follows. Through the Lord's Supper, when we, when we meet with our fellow believers at the table, God is, he's not only turning our eyes to what Jesus has done for us in the past on the cross, but he's turning our eyes to what God is doing in his church, that we can look around this room and see that every single person sitting here is a sinful person, but they have been redeemed when they have Jesus by the blood of the lamb. And that's something that we celebrate we can live in the present celebrating that reality. And then we look to the future. Through the Lord's Supper, God turns our eyes to what Jesus will do ultimately in the end. Listen to what Jesus promises in Mark 14, 25. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus, he's emphasizing that uh, he will not be taking this meal again with his followers until he is able to partake with them one day in the kingdom of God. Jesus, time and time again, he speaks of this coming kingdom of God as if it were a great banquet feast. One day, our eternity with God, it will include a table fellowship with God and with one another. And 
the perfect family with the, the perfect heavenly father gathered around the dinner table. So when the church partakes of the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying that you know, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's 1 Corinthians 11. And when he comes, there will be this great banquet where people of all nations, of all languages, will gather together in the celebration of the salvation that they have received. And we're about to take in this, partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. And we're about to proclaim the, the goodness of what Christ has done, of what he is doing, and what he will do in the end. And so how should we respond to this act of worship? First, we reflect. This act of worship is for those who have been saved by their faith in Jesus. You know, the Lord's Supper, it's not for unbelievers. In fact, it serves as this line in the sand. You are either a participant in the saving benefits of the blood, or you are not. You are either a follower of Jesus as, as your Lord and your Savior, or you are not. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're just joining us for the first time, I would ask that you just please refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper. Reflect on the standing uh, before, that you have before God and whether or not you believe that, that, it, that Jesus died for you and rose again on the third day. And if you need prayer for that, if you need, if you need help with that, come talk to me, one of the pastors, one of our staff members, your neighbor, don't leave here without hearing the good news. And if you're a Christian, this supper, the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves as we reflect. In Corinth, the people were partaking in the Lord's Supper at one point while sinning against their brothers and sisters within the church. And they were not considering the meaning of the supper because they were living lives that were contrary to the gospel. And Paul warns them with these words. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's Supper, it's, it's a time in which we reflect on a simple question. Does my life align with what the gospel says? Does my life align with what I believe about the cross? Does my life align with Jesus? And upon this reflection, we repent. As we consider the cross and the sin that Jesus, uh, sins that Jesus put, that was put on Jesus on the cross, we consider that our lives are sinful. And we consider the ways that we fall short. And those things, they should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to actively seek the Lord's mercy and the Lord's help to turn away from the things that put Jesus on that cross. The Lord's Supper, it's a reminder to keep repenting from sin. We, we all sin. We all fail. Sinlessness, it's, that's not the evidence of a true Christian. Rather, it's repentance. That's the evidence of a true Christian. We sin, and then we repent. We, we turn from it because we, we hate, and we want to overcome that sin. We turn to God for help in that fight. 
And so in the Lord's Supper, we, we turn to Christ for the strength who provides, uh, that he provides for the, the, the fight against sin that he died for. So when we reflect, we repent, we are quickly ushered into this state of thanksgiving and joy, all because we recognize that our sins have been paid for. We are partakers of this divine blessing because Jesus accomplished it for us. And we get to partake simply by believing, truly believing in him. This ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and it's, a, it's an, essential, an essential part of what it means to be a genuine church. As the church of God, we are to reflect on what Christ has done, and we are to celebrate this together. As we wrap up today, I just want to read a simple quote uh, from, from this scholar named Edmund who writes this. He says, The Lord's Supper, it's not a self-served frozen TV dinner enjoyed alone before the television screen. Baptism, it's not to be celebrated in the privacy of one's bath shower. They are a blessing to be found in the company of God's people. May we be a genuine church here at Living Water Community Church. May we be a genuine church that is devoted to both baptism and the Lord's Supper. May we be a people that build one another up in fellowship all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. We come before you in this time and we reflect on these, these two important acts of worship, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Lord. And we, we understand and we see how these are pictures of what you have done on our behalf. Jesus, we deserve the cross. In our sinful state, that is where we deserve to be, but God, you, you took that all because you loved us so much in the hope that we would believe, that we would repent, and that we come back into the faithful fellowship of your family. And so God, let us remember what it means to, to be baptized what baptism represents when we see it. Let us remember when we participate in the Lord's Supper in just a few moments that the only reason we are able to do so is because you, you stepped up in our behalf to take the punishment for us. God, you are so good. Your mercies endure forever. I'm so thankful for all that you have done in our lives, in this church, all the other churches and, and people that you are interacting with, Lord. And we pray that you will continue to bring people to you so that your church will continue to grow. So be with us now, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.